Tonight on Arena, Vim Vendors on his film Perfect Days, the story of a Japanese toilet cleaner, and Marion Quinn on Twig, which brings the Antigone story to today's Dublin. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Vim Vendors has been making films since the early nineteen seventies and has long been considered a pioneer of German cinema, along with contemporaries like Werner Herzog. So, uh, so many of the films of Vim Vendors are now considered classics. Films like Paris, Texas, Wings of Desire, and his documentary Buena Vista Social Club. He has long been associated with the city of Tokyo, in particular for his work there on the nineteen eighty five documentary. Tokyo Ga about the renowned Japanese filmmaker Yasujiro Uzo, whose work has been an acknowledged inspiration to vendors. Now his latest feature, Perfect Days, see the o- sees the auteur returning to the Japanese capital to make a meditative feature film about living minimally and living in the present. It tells the story of Hirayama, a man in late middle age who, we gradually learn, has turned his back on the rat race to focus instead on the simple everyday pleasures in life. He takes enormous care in his work as a toilet cleaner and makes the most of his downtime and indeed any moments of joy that come his way. Recently, when I spoke to Vim Vendors about Perfect Days, I began by asking him about the unusual way the film came about. It was an invitation. It was a very nice open invitation if I might want to come to Tokyo and to see if a number of places could inspire me. Now, I like to be inspired by places. That's the way I usually make my movies. But in this case, when I kept reading, the places were toilets. (laughs) And I wasn't quite so sure if if I was going to take that that invitation seriously until I continued reading that these toilets were quite special and that they were made by 15 world-famous architects, of which I know two personally. And... That our under was actually a good friend. So I took these toilets more seriously and realized they were pretty gems. And these architects are normally built banks and museums had built tiny the possible the tiniest possible units, which was a public toilet. So I was intrigued and I went the next possible time, which was a couple of months later, looked at the toilets, liked them, but realized it was maybe not the greatest thing one could do at that moment in Tokyo to make documentary about these toilets. Somehow behind the whole idea there was something bigger hidden and there was something more important to do. It was right after the pandemic, the Japanese people had come out after the longest lockdown and they came back and took possession of the city in in such a peaceful, beautiful, civilized way, respectful of each other and of the places And the opposite had happened in my own town and in many places where I'd been after the pandemic. The pandemic had a huge victim in most places, which was the sense of the common good and not so in Japan. On the opposite, it seemed like this this sense, the civic sense had even survived better. And I loved that. And I felt the urge to make a movie about something that I had sensed all during the pandemic. I had sensed we should all sort humanity should start living after different afterwards we should all learn from it and and it didn't happen actually the opposite was the place 
life was more reckless than before. Yeah. And in Tokyo, I saw an alternative. And I thought, well, if I tell a story of a caretaker of these toilets, so they appear and they are beautiful places. And I love these little parks and I love Tokyo in the first place. And then I can do something that's really worth the time instead of making four documentaries that in the end only architectural aficionados would see. So as I was invited, I told them what I was inspired to and thinking I would talk me out of the job. But instead they said, oh, well, that's interesting. Do you think you can actually do it? And I said, yes, all I need is a script and a good actor. And that became the beginning of Perfect Days. I must say, as you describe it there, my reaction when I heard Vin Vendors is making a film that's about toilets, I did probably have a reaction to something the same as your own. How is he going to do that? And what you, what you give us is this extraordinary story, because it is a fiction, but a fiction based, based in and around the importance of, you know, those public toilets in terms of public service, in terms of how we are part of a community. But around this man, this character, uh, Hirayami, played by uh, Koji Yakusho, um, he, he's an extraordinary character. And in, to some extent, yes, it could have been a documentary. There is a kind of documentary feel to it, which is hardly surprising in terms of your own filmmaking. We sit with him in his van as he travels to the various toilets that he cleans and we watch him cleaning those toilets, which on the surface of it sounds like a, a pretty dull story. How, how slowly or in what way from those very mundane, everyday, repeated actions, when did the story start to unfold out into something much bigger it started i think out of the character it started out of his dedication out of the self-esteem that he gets out of doing something as good as possible he's not depending on the on the approval of others he's just depending on his own self-respect and he gets it out of his work like a good craftsman get his self-respect out of dedicating all his efforts each time in the same object, may it be clay or wood, and he creates something with his hands and does it as good as he can. And these craftsmen in Japan are very highly regarded. They're almost at the top of the social ladder. They're national monuments. And here in our civilization in Europe and in America, craftsmen are rather on the lower level of social acceptance so in japan is different and they have this they have this respect for things that are done mm. beautifully and with care and with love and so he goes about his work and he has this other idea that he realized it somewhere in the past of his life that if you have too much or if you have it all you don't have nothing and if you have just what you need you might have everything and he realized that there was a certain bliss in reducing your life to what you need and he managed that i have to tell you i met before i made this movie uh, i met a number of young people in new york also in berlin other cities they are part of a movement and the movement is can you live with as much stuff that fits into a suitcase and if you're not, then you're not part of the club. And all these young people who are into minimalism and to reduction, 
they are all cool, calm and collected and there is a light in their eyes and they know what they're living for. And all their friends who have everything and who, I don't know, who live in abundance are still lacking a lot. So I realized these people had a great idea and I've tried to put this idea also into our man here, Ayama's life. He just has what he needs. He He's happy to read his book in the evening, but he only reads one. And when he's finished, he goes and buys one new one. He doesn't go buy a stack. He buys one next book. And it's, of course, a used book because the book is still the same if somebody else read it or not. And he takes pictures with his camera, but he only has one film of 20 exposures and he gives it to be developed on the weekend and he buys one more film. Yeah. And that is philosophy. You only need little to to do everything you want. And he dug thing. a old cassette recorder from his youth and found his old cassettes and realized this was the only music he ever cared for. So he doesn't need more. One thing I do need to ask you about before we finish, Vim, is this, uh, the nature of shadow and light, which comes across, yes, he has those books, yes, he has his wonderful collection of tapes, it has to be said, that he listens to as he drives along. Um, and the title of the film comes from, uh, obviously, Lou Reed and Perfect Day. But these little shadowy flickers, almost dream sequences that are there in the film, pictures of trees, light breaking through trees. There's a big philosophical discussion about shadow at the end of the film. Talk to me, uh, if you would, about that Japanese concept of, if I'm saying the word correctly, komorebi. Komorebi is the word that sums up something that we need different, that we need a couple of lines to explain it the light shining through trees and casting this strange little spectacle on the floor or on a wall and every now and then you see it. It's quite unique. Sometimes it's just very ephemeral. It appears for a few seconds and it leaves again. And very often it's just one person who sees it. And these Komorebi in my book played a part in a big change in, in Hirayama's life. He was a businessman. He was from a privileged background. He had it all, but he was unhappy, and he was drinking, and he was probably into drugs. And one day he woke up in this stupid hellhole of a hotel, didn't even know how he got there, and realized he was disgusted with this life, and there's no sense to it. And looking up from his bed into this ugly little room, he saw something happening just in front of him. Out of nowhere, one light of sun one ray of sunlight came through the window and threw that little tree, crummy tree in front of the window, and it cast this little komorebi, this little spectacle of light in front of him, and he stopped breathing and just saw it and was shocked that he had never seen anything as beautiful before in his life and that he never noticed. And this was only for him, and the light had traveled from very far out of the universe, from the sun, just for him into this little room. And he realized there was so much beauty and there was such a calmness in his heart as he watches it. He decides he's going to live with that in mind and he's going to change his life. And he became a gardener to be close to trees and light. And one day they offered him the job as the caretaker of the toilets and that was a great decision in his life and he's a happy man and because he has a rich life and everything he wants is there it couldn't have been made anywhere but uh, japan i'm guessing vim they have they have lessons to teach us thank you they absolutely have and i was i can't wait to be back and 
I thank you for our talk, Sean. Sean rocks, it says. Is it true? You might have to ask others that if about the <laughs> statement. The name is true. The statement, that is for others to judge. <laughs> okay. Okay, Sean, you rock. I wish you the very best and have a good day. You too, Vim. Thanks very much for a lovely movie. Glad. Thanks. Oh, it's such a perfect day. I'm glad I spent it with you. Oh, such a perfect day. You just keep me hanging on. You just keep me hanging on. Oh, it's always great to hear Lou Reed and Perfect Day, a song which features beautifully in Vim Vendor's latest film, Perfect Days. In fact, it is a song which is on one of those cassette tapes that the character of Hiriyama listens to all of the time. It was great to talk with Vim Vendors about Perfect Days, which of course has been nominated in the Best International Film category at next month's Oscars. It opens this weekend in Irish cinemas and we will review it on Thursday night's Arena. Leslie Jemison writes mainly non-fiction and memoir. Her work has been compared to that of Joan Didion and Susan Santag. And like those writers, she's no stranger to painful loss, magical thinking and indeed luminous prose. In her memoir, Splinters, Jemison turns her gaze on some of the most important and intimate relationships of her life, her consuming love for her young daughter, her difficult split from her husband and her childhood relationship with her parents. Splinters examines a life composed of conflicting identities, and contradictory desires as Jemison navigates new motherhood, a bitter divorce and a pandemic, all told with a lot of wit, humour and unflinching honesty. Delighted to be joined by Leslie Jemison on the line right now. Maybe we can just dive straight in, uh, Leslie, to the opening section because it will it will set the, the stall out for us perfectly if you would read it for us. Absolutely. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. And I'll just read from the very beginning of Splinters. The baby and I arrived at our sublet with garbage bags full of shampoo and teething crackers, sleeves of instant oatmeal, zippered pajamas with little dangling feet. At a certain point, I'd run out of suitcases we had diapers patterned with drawings of scrambled eggs and bacon. Why put breakfast on diapers, I might have asked, if there had been another adult in the room. There was not. Outside, it was 19 degrees in the sun. For the next month, we were renting this railroad one-bedroom beside a firehouse. I'd brought raspberries and a travel crib, white Christmas lights to make the dim space glow. Next door, a fireman strutted toward his engine with a chainsaw in one hand and a box of cereal in the other. My baby tracked his every move. What was he doing with her Cheerios? It was only when I told my divorce lawyer, she is 13 months old, that my voice finally broke. As it turns out, Divorce lawyers keep tissues in their offices just like therapists, only not as ready to hand. I know we've got them somewhere, she told me warily, rising from her swivel chair to search. 
as if to say, we aren't surprised by your tears, but it's not our job to manage them. If I cried for five minutes, it would cost me $50. Terrible to have to put a price on tears like that. That is Leslie Jemison reading from the opening section of her memoir, uh, Splinters. Um, one of the things that struck me about the title, and, and obviously we're dealing with the situation, it's laid out there, you've moved to this sublet, there's a divorce in process, and you have a 13-month-old child with you in the in this sublet. When I think of Splinters, Leslie, I think of small, uh, annoying little things, probably pieces of wood that get stuck somewhere unusual, up underneath your nail or in some part of your body, and they cause pain that is way out of proportion to the size of the little splinter itself. The birth of a child and a a divorce are not small little splinters. They're big chunks of wood, joyous and painful. Yeah, it's... it's, um, I'm glad you asked about the title because there is a way, I mean... Of, of course, the things that I'm writing about are mm. larger than than just these tiny splinters. But I very much wanted to capture exactly that feeling you're describing of something, something that hurts and has gotten inside of you and actually, you know, for however long becomes part of you. And it was that idea of the thing that's lodged under the skin that you can't quite let go of and you can't get rid of, but you have to somehow figure out how to make it part of you. That's part of what I was trying to capture with that idea of of, of mm. the kind of pain, but also it becomes part of who you are. And I guess if you're a writer, the way you dislodge the splinter or you deal with that pain is by, by writing it out of yourself. Is that what the book does for you? Absolutely. There's a, there's, I mean, I've always moved through experience by trying to make sense of it and trying to tell stories about it. And, you know, sometimes that takes the form that it does for everybody. You know, you meet up with a friend at the end of the day and you're telling a story about this terrible thing your boss did. And it's part of how you kind of, Mm. uh, don't get totally consumed by it and part of how you make sense of it. Um, but for me, there's always been this way that, that, drawing on my life and what I've lived to make art is, is it's not that it, it takes all the feeling out of it or completely resolves it or ties a bow on it, but it does, it helps me, it helps me understand experiences as having meaning. At a certain point in the book, you talk about your daydreams. I'm paraphrasing slightly here. And you say that the daydreams that you had or when you dreamt of yourself at some way in the future, there was always uh, motherhood was always involved and writing was always involved. Now here you are in this sublet with the two things that you most need. Was that was ultimately was that a happy place to be? Um, I love I love that you uh, talked about daydreams because I'm actually so obsessed with daydreams that I'm now writing a whole book about mm-hmm. them. Um, but there is, you know, part of what I wanted to to write into in Splinters was this way that sometimes even when you get what you've always wished for, what you've always wanted, it doesn't look exactly how you imagined. In fact, I think it almost never looks exactly how you imagined. And yes, in this moment, in this like fraught uncertain, painful, but also very kind of moment of freedom, I did have the two things that mattered most to me. I had my daughter and I had, um, I guess, the ability to tell stories. And But but that the script of my life looked nothing like how it had played out. And I wanted to write about that too, how things turn out absolutely not as you planned, but that you can build a life in this in this 
kind of situation mm. that you never imagined. So in some ways that that is the because it, it strikes me that happiness and pain are are both very present in in the book. And we're talking about the very happy parts of it there. The fact that, yes, you had the two things you wanted, even if they weren't exactly the way you expected them to, to work. I think you talk about them not having the texture, possibly, that that you had expected in various parts of your life. Uh, the other part, of course, the, the, the painful part, I guess, must have been the divorce, the bit with the lawyer ready with the tissue and the, the stopwatch on how long you were going to spend crying. Uh, <laughs> both things, I'm one sure in one hand. I'm happy for me to <laughs> cry all day, I guess, if she could charge by the hour. Um, yeah, I mean, I, for me, this book was always about the intertwining of this intense joy, falling in love with my daughter. I'm still falling in love with my daughter every day. And then the intense pain of grieving the end of my marriage and grieving the loss of what I'd hoped my marriage could be. And I wanted to to write about the ways that those two radically different feelings coexisted every day. They were like a double helix of intense emotion that was just wound through you know, those days, those mm. months, those years of my life. And, you know, regardless of what anybody has been through, like not everybody is a parent, not everybody has been married, not everybody, thank God, has been divorced. But I think everybody has some version of that experience, right, where you're feeling two, two things that feel so different and so incongruous that it's hard to hold them both at once. But you have to. We all do. How difficult was it? I mean, it. it, it, it I presume it's it's relatively easy to write about the joys of having uh, the daughter that you even talk about this I, I think you refer to it as literally being consumed and consuming her love uh, on a regular basis there, there's a joyous aspect to that uh, uh, presumably that is easier to write about how difficult is it to write about a divorce in that situation where let's face it and it would I'm sure it's an accusation that has been levelled at you by by people um, we're hearing your side of the story we're not hearing two sides of the story yeah, it's a great question. I, th I think the first thing I would say is that actually, I think motherhood isn't always easy to write about. I think it's very important to write about. Yeah. And there was a sort of surge of feeling that came quite readily to me. But at the same time, anybody who's parented knows, and even people who haven't, but have had to hear about it from other people, you know, it's repetitive, it's monotonous, sometimes it's almost mind-numbingly boring. And figuring out a way to do justice to the dailiness of it and the ongoingness of it and even the tedium of it without replicating, hopefully, those experiences mm. for a reader actually demanded is part of what inspired the form of this book, which is told in these short, whittled vignettes of intense experience that I also think of as kind of splinters of text or splinters of prose. And that was one of the ways that I tried to write the intensity of motherhood, but not in this kind of beat by beat every moment of it way. Um, mm. And then to the second part of your question, I think actually the, the, the splinters that compose this book, its particular form and structure was also part of how I wrote about marriage and divorce, that I told exactly the parts of the story that felt essential to the emotional wrestling of this book and left out the rest, you know, left out 99.5%, mm. um, which was you know, part of what I needed to do to be a, a human being as well as a writer. Um, but I will share the best piece of wisdom that I ever received about writing divorce, writing heartbreak came 
um, from the genius memoirist Mary Carr. And she said, you know, you don't um, you don't write the pain of divorce by writing what was hard about the divorce. You write the pain of divorce by writing the love that came before. And I really um, I really carried that with me as I was working on this book. It was very important to me not to kind of litigate a case against anybody, not to kind of rant or force a reader to be on mm. my side, but to really write this deep love. And that that was how I was going to write the feeling of loss that came from its dissolution. And to be fair, it should be said that the your ex-husband is identified only as C here. I think many people may well be able to identify he was a writer and is a writer. They may be able to identify him themselves. It's not that important without dismissing him in any way. But you give the, the, the manuscript to him, as indeed you did to other people you speak about, including your own father, who um, I, I, was... Is it fair to say absent for a lot of your uh, of of your young life post uh, the divorce from your mother, you gave the manuscripts to people like that to look at and to say, is there anything here that you have a problem with? Yeah, I do. I've I've done that. You know, I've been writing nonfiction for uh, ten years, more, but but publishing books for ten years, and I've and I've I've really made a practice of doing this and. It's important to me to give people at least the opportunity, certainly to read the work so they're not ambushed by it, but also to tell me, you know, here's what bothers me. Here's what I remember differently. Here's, it would be important to me if you include this. And mm. it's, I never, rarely do I promise, you know, I'll sort of do everything you ask or take out everything you ask me to take out, or I'll replace the way I remember something with the way you remember it. But I do, I do promise to listen and I do promise to edit with their feedback in mind, um, which is what I did for this book as well. And, you know, I I think writing is never, you're never going to please everybody, but um, I at least try to bring other voices into the process. I I know uh, your father mentioned the word, was it specifically the word powerful that you used at one, uh, that you use it at one stage to to describe him? He asked you to remove that. and, And yet it sounds like a compliment. (laughs) <laughs> well, this I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that specific detail, um, because one of the things that I actually have found most illuminating about this process of sharing manuscripts with the people who appear in them is that I can never predict. I can never predict the reaction somebody will have. I can never. The things I think will bother them don't. The things I never imagined bothering them do. And, you know, that I never would have imagined that the thing my father would want me to change is this word powerful, which I think is like could probably write a whole book about his relationship to the idea of power. But um, but that in and of itself feels like this important kind of humility, right? Mm. Rather than assuming we know how people are going to react, rather than assuming we know what other people think, why not just let them tell us? The, the other aspect of the book that that, that struck me was the imp- how family became about something else in some ways. It became about a group of female friends, all of whom you, you describe as being holy themselves. Uh, again, I might be paraphrasing slightly there, but the women that you, you were interested in, your daughter, being around your daughter, were women that you felt were holy themselves. Do you think the experience that the experiences that you've written about in Spinters have brought you closer to that place? I I love talking about this part of the book because in addition to being a a record of the beginning of my daughter's life and the end of my marriage, this book is absolutely about 
other forms of sustaining intimacy that have felt crucial to my existence, my relationship with my mother, most of all, but also my relationships with friends and my relationships with my students. I've been a teacher for a long time. And I wanted to write the ways that we're kind of composed by who we're allowed to become in these long-term intimate relationships. And, you know, the I've always thought of this book as another kind of love story in, mm. in the U.S. That's its subtitle is another kind of love story. And I think of it uh, not only as a love story, uh, kind of for and about my daughter and my mother. So in that sense, a kind of intergenerational love story, but also a love story um, about my friendships, about these other women who at certain points have been surrogate mothers, surrogate partners, surrogate teachers. Um, so it's it's really an ode to them as well. One final question then to go back to the initial uh, se- section that you read from the book for us. Did you ever find out why the fireman had the chainsaw on the bo- and the box of cereal in his hand? Or was it just a delightful moment that was presented to a writer? You know, sometimes, I mean, I can only imagine that he was fueling himself up for some very heroic endeavor with that chainsaw. But I do know that when you when you write every once in a while, you think, God, the universe just uh, <laughs> just gave me a gift. And that fireman certainly was one of those. <laughs> chainsaw and box of cereal, an amazing image. <laughs> Leslie, thanks so much for being with us this evening. Thank you so much for having me. That's Leslie Jamison and she was speaking to us about her memoir Splinters which is published by Granta. Storm in My Heart is the third solo album from singer-songwriter John Faulkner known for his collaboration for many years with Dolores Keane. Storm in My Heart is an album of original songs with accompaniment from some of John's musical friends from clarinet and accordion to fiddle and pipes. The album features a wide palette of instruments which includes duets with singer-songwriter Declan O'Rourke and the late John Prine. Uh, this is The Laird of the Land, written by John Faulkner and Declan O'Rourke. It's the story of two young Scottish crofters who are lured by the Lord, or the Lords to fight in World War I on the promise of owning their own parcel of land on the return. But of course, the Laird reneged on his promise. Here then is the Lord of the, the Laird of the Land, John Faulkner and Declan O'Rourke. Their names were never written down on history's hero's page Just a letter to their mothers that their cowardice was stayed No inscription on no headstone saying never did they yield The only land they got was in a lonely Flanders field The Laird of the Land there from John Faulkner and Declan O'Rourke with Brendan O'Regan on bazooki and percussion. That's from John Faulkner's new album, Storm In My Heart. Full information on johnfaulknermusic.com. Now, you might recall we had Mokara from the Belfast band Kneecap on the show a few months ago. Since then, the three-piece punk rap band of Mokara, Mowgli Bap and DJ Provi, whose lyrics are predominantly in the Irish language, opened the Sundance Film Festival with their semi-autobiographical biopic film called also called Kneecap. The film stars Michael Fassbender and was so well received it won the Audience Award at Sundance. Today, Kneecap have announced details of their debut album, Fine Art, it is called, and it is planned for release on June the 14th. But we don't want to wait until June the 14th, do we? Uh, So I'm going to play a a new track that they've just released today, Sick in the Head, from the album. Uh, The cover art 
for the single features a painting of former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in a gilt frame with, quote, sick in the head, stamped in green on the Iron Lady. Be warned, there is some strong language in the midst of this. This is Sick in the Head. I've got a point to be driven to myself Sitting too long, getting moody on the shelf Wasn't too far gone when it comes to mental health But I'd be sick in the head with a little bit of wealth Come and chin the bite, I got a cold and strong charade My time can do you and I need to sit down and charade I give me life and not just shit with kind of car Now my goal is by a guest, I can show him on There we go, Kneecap and the new single Sick in the Head from their album Fine Art. The album will be out on June the 14th. The Edge single is out today. And as I mentioned there, Kneecap, the film, opened the Sundance Film Festival a while back. Now to another film, opening another film festival over the past two decades, the Dublin International Film Festival, one of Ireland's premier film events, screening more than 1,600 international films from over 52 countries. Also had many distinguished guests from the likes of Al Pacino to Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, this year's guests include Isabel Hubert, Steve McQueen, Jared Harris, Kevin MacDonald and Maxine Peake. The festival returns from February the 22nd through until March the 2nd and the opening film for the Dublin International Film Festival will be Twig, a reimagining of the Greek tragedy of Antigone but set in Dublin's modern gangland. Delighted to be joined in studio this evening by the director and writer of the film, Marion Quinn, and uh, rte.ie forward slash arena if you want to be part of the live stream at this point in time. Uh, just remind us of the classic Antigone tale in, in, in Greek times, if you like, Marion, to get us into that mood and that place. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I always say it's the, the tale of the girl who's you know, stands up to the king and so must die. But it is, um, the backdrop is um, Antigone's two brothers have been a part of a bloody uh, civil war mm. and they kill each other in the battlefields. And so one brother is given a royal uh, funeral because he's allied with her uncle Creon, who's the new king. And then the other brother is left to rot in the street. That's the decree from the new king. Mm. And so the sister says... I'm not going to do that. I'm going to bury my brother. And this is the clash then between the the, the moral uh, high ground of the girl grieving and the king trying to assert himself, you know, as the new the new ruler. And you do have a little bit of fun that some in some of the renamings, <laughs> it has to be said. So Creon becomes Leon, yes. Leon Duke and um, uh, Paulina says, who's the uh, Polynices, who's yes. the, who's one of the brothers, becomes yeah. Polly, you yeah. know, and and yeah. and you play around with that. I'm sorry, Eurydice, I suppose, becomes Eunice, who's the the wife of yes. of, of Creon, stuff yeah. like that. How readily or how quickly did you kind of think this can be told in a Dublin, in a contemporary Dublin setting, or even though there is a, a little bit of a feel of a. A slightly dystopian Dublin. It's, it seems as if things are there's a slightly tighter control from the authorities and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good way to describe it because I I had always thought that it was like Dublin, but like sitting a little bit out of time, mm. like something a little bit different. The police are a little bit different. This is sort of cordoned off, you know, this community, and there's this sense of it is Dublin, but it's slightly different. So I think for me, um. When I always loved Antigone, like mm. from drama school, she's a great, she's one of the great female protagonists, you know, from 
thousands of years ago. Um, and then I thought, well, if I was going to retell that story, I'd have to change it and make it positive, it, you know, have a happy ending or something. And then mm. as I kind of was looking into it and I was looking at the world and and this this strange place that we're in now with these, you know, dictators and, you know, democracy being questioned in so many different places around the world and then the wars. And so mm. it seemed like it wasn't as far fetched anymore to kind of, you know, use the, the original and to have to see if we could make that work. Um, I'm a huge fan of The Wire, the TV series. Yeah. And I, I mean, I adored it. I, I think it's like the finest television that's been made. But I remember at the time, David Simon, who made it, said that everyone said it was Dickensian. And he would say in interviews, go a little further back. I think it's Greek, <laughs> you know, and I loved his his uh, ambition and his scale. And I thought, yeah, when I was watching that, I was gripped and it was such a tragedy what was happening to the young mm. boys and being dragged into the drug trade and we know what would happen to them. But I also thought, what, I wonder what the lives of those women are like. I just I really wanted to see that. And I suppose my love of Antigone and then loving Dublin and the north inner city where I used to live. And I just thought, well, maybe and there's some great, strong, powerful women. And I thought maybe, you know, combining that and yeah. getting because it, the wars, whether it's drug wars or so-called legitimate wars, they're young men and, and older men and the women, the wives, the sisters, the mothers, they're left behind, you know, and they've to bury the dead. And I and there's the grieving and. So I thought that was an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I, actually, I'm, I'm going to go to the to to the moment when Leon makes his decree because this is when the the twig who's the Shadow Malone playing the Antigone character, mm. when she is in grieving over the the body of the brother who has been killed, um, and the other brother is we don't know what his state is, but we know it's not good. He's he's, he's not going to survive too long. He's been very badly injured in in that kind of setup in, 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 in the early part. But she's in grieving over the, the body of her brother and Brian Effelburn as Leon, uh, the, the kind of the, the kingpin of the whole situation, walks over to the door to kind of to sympathise with her and she slams the door in his face. Twig is in there with him. Oh, Jesus. Poor kid. Twig. Um... Okay, listen, uh, I mean, listen, sometimes girls get hysterical in grief. I mean, you've a lot to be dealing with. I mean, your brother killed his own brother. I want all of you to know that all that chaos, all that nonsense is over now. You'll see, I put order back in our world, and that snake, Polly, is lying dying somewhere, and when he dies, I'm gonna leave his body out to rot. That's right. He's gonna stink to high heaven as the rats feed him. And anyone who dares give him a burial will get the same. That's Brian Effelburn as Leon Duke in Twig, uh, director Marion Quinn with me in studio this evening. And it, it struck me there, he talks about, because you, know, you think, how are you going to get that burial thing to hold the same kind of status that it would have had in a Greek tragedy? But there you have, you know, 
we leave them lying out and the rats can feed on them and it sounds totally viable. And it struck me at times the language that was used. I think it's very early on when three of the women are together in the room. One of them says something along the lines of God protect us or God look after us. And it has a kind of a, an epic feel, even though it's it's just an exclamation. Did, did you have, was it difficult to search for that, those little moments when you could get that heightened language into a very naturalistic situation? Yeah, I, I mean, I really did want to hold on to some of that. And um, I felt that, especially with this cast they're they're really terrific cast that they they could reach for those moments you know where she says like I'm I'm well I'm going by uh, God's law Mm. you know and and to to you know to kind of put it in those terms and um yeah, it was sort of a line to walk. And I was always like, we're walking this line. I hope this is working. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think, you know, yeah, I I think we pulled it off in that regard that they, especially the actors were able to to rise up to that sort of heightened language when we needed it. Yeah. And I suppose the, the really important among the actors here are the, those young women. Twig played by Shadi Malone, um, her, her sister Issy played by Galia Conroy and um, Jade Jordan who plays a kind of a friend those three women those three young women are vital to this cast uh, vital to the story but particularly Shadow Malone she carries a lot of the film on her shoulders yeah she's she's a real um well, what a great find. Like uh, when she came in, she her first audition was a full blown performance, like just a terrific. We, we were like, wow, who is this? And, um, you know, she just kind of carried on from there. But she also, you know, I, I call her an acrobat. I feel like she could go this way. She can go that way. She can turn herself inside out and then pop right back up. And she has the ability to wear it all really lightly and make it look very easy. And I think she's just one of those really instinctual actors. It's all gut. Mm. You know, it's not that she I mean, she's had all her training and she's done all the work, but she just brings a, a sort of a gravity and a levity at the same time. It's a, it's a real, it's a great combination. Yeah, and she, she has to carry, I suppose, the moral weight of the of the tale on her shoulders. But there's yeah. also the, the love across, the kind of love across the divide. She's not in love with the wrong guy, but she's, there's, a, there's an interesting love triangle in some ways, isn't there? Yes, yeah. So that's Eamon um, and that would be uh, Leon's son. Yeah. And Who's Hamon in the, in the original, Hamon isn't he? Hamon in the original, yeah. And we had Danica Tynan um, mm. playing that role and it was just a lovely sort of chemistry between the two of them. And um, yeah, so in the end, you know, anyway, yeah. breaks, breaks hearts. Yeah, well, it's a Greek <laughs> yeah. tragedy, it's not a Greek yes. comedy. Um, let's have a listen to a scene early on when things are much rosier and much happier yeah. between Eamon, played by Donica Tynan, and Twig, played by Shadi Malone. Here they are very early, and I think this is the opening scene, in fact, in the film when they're being very close to each other. I wish we could take a slow boat to China. No one could catch us. Let's do it. You have so much going for you. I'd never take you away from other. I don't want any of it, Twig. I'm not my father. I know, Wayman. I don't want any part of my family's business either. We have our passports. Nice and cash. Where would we go? It doesn't matter. We'd be gone, Twig. We'd be free. 
free. There we have it. Uh, Donica Tynan as Eamon Duke and Shelley Malone as Twig in the film Twig, the story of Antigone, as told by writer-director Marion Quinn, who's with me in studio this evening. You dedicate um, this to your own brother, Paul. Yeah, yeah. Paul was a writer and director. Um, he made a beautiful film. His first film was called This Is My Father. Um, that my other two brothers worked on together. So it was the three of them. Aidan being the, the actor brother. And yeah, your other, Declan, is your other brothers, Declan is a cinematographer, cinematographer isn't he? Yeah. yeah, and he shot Twig. Actually. Ah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yes. So he would have been very much um, supportive and would have loved this. So, yes. And, and I'm, I'm thinking about the four of you growing up in Chicago, wasn't it? You know, was there yeah. a big, given that this is, this is very much, it's in five acts. We have a prologue. We have an epilogue set out for us like a play. How important was theatre at that point in, in the whole Quinn family life, given that all of you were involved in, um, in the yeah, arts? Well, one other brother who's not, he, he was a landscaper. But um, yeah, it, I mean, my dad was an English professor, but I don't think we, um, you know, we didn't really come to it until later on. Mm. You know, Declan was the one who started the whole kind of towards film. I think he was a photographer and then he studied film and then Aidan studied acting and then Paul and I studied in the same place yeah. in the Piven Theatre Workshop. And then it sort of went from there, I suppose. But my mother was a great storyteller. And yeah, I, I don't know. It's a funny thing. I think um, just the way some families are all electricians. Yeah. Are, <laughs> I suppose know. we could argue that the landscaper was already in the visual world as well. Exactly. We could argue that, couldn't we, as yeah, well? Yeah. Thanks for coming into us this evening, okay. Marion. That's Marion Quinn, so uh, director of the film Twig, which will be opening this year's Dublin International Film Festival. And that is on this coming Thursday, February the 22nd. The festival runs right through until March the 2nd. Full information about uh, various screenings on the website, DIA. FF.ie and that is our lot for this Tuesday evening. Niall Fitzmaurice and Leah Murphy were the researchers. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Tommy O'Sullivan was on sound this evening and tonight's programme produced by Kay Sheehy. Talk to you tomorrow night once again 7 o'clock here on RTE Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.